everybody, and welcome to the Attitude is a Lifestyle podcast. I am your host, Basic Brian, and you are listening to a special Valentine's theme episode entitled, What's Love Got to Do With It? Whether this is your first or third time tuning in, I want to let you know I'm glad that you are here and hope that you will find a reason to keep coming back. The goal of this podcast is to present relevant topics, have conversations, and provide resources to help you understand what got you where you are today and maybe get you a little closer to finding what you're looking for in life. If you're like me, when you hear the title of the episode, you may be humming the popular tune off Tina Turner's 1984 album entitled Private Dancer. Since I do not have permission to play the song, I'll do the next best thing, sing it pentatonic style. Uh, Just kidding. I'll leave the singing to the pros and just read the lyrics Shakespearean style. You must understand how the touch of your hand makes my pulse react. That it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. Oh, 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 what's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Because who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Sorry. Sorry about that. Sometimes I just can't help myself. Have you ever given thought to how your idea of love came to be developed? Was it from your parents, soap operas, Hallmark movies, or romance novels? Depending on your generation and where you live in the world, there is a good chance it has been influenced by pop culture as examples of what you want or do not want in your relationship. One thing is for sure, the idea of love and relationships has developed over the centuries. An article entitled The Day Love Was Invented, originally published April 17, 2011 on the Psychology Today website, explains the transition this way. These days, few people think of marrying without having feelings of love for their partner. Love is what brings us together, and the lack of it drives us apart. But it hasn't always been this way. There was a time when the question of love was not an issue. Beginning in ancient Greece, the consent of marriage was given by the father of the bride, who wasn't allowed opinion of her own. So it was the father who had to be convinced of the interest the union of his daughter with a rich and prestigious or at least worthy family would bring. The ability to seduce and convince the young girl that she was loved could nevertheless make her more accepting of the situation between simple physical attraction and pure calculation of interest. The article goes on to explain, In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church instituted the sacrament of marriage. The blessing given to the spouses was supposed to transmute physical love into a more spiritual one. So, since true love was supposed to be a consequence of the religious wedding, it may have been unnecessary to have true feelings for the person whom one was about to marry. Love was supposed to arise in marriage and from marriage, so that the feelings felt before marriage were of little consequence. Continuing on, by the end of the 11th and throughout the 12th centuries, when poets from southern France invented and here's an example of why I call myself Basic Brian, uh, La Amour Courtois, or Courtly Love, 
love emerged as an essential theme in the relationship between men and women. Courtly love was a brand new, even revolutionary idea that was supposed that was opposed to marriage and its sacrament. With this conception, true love only existed in a chaste form and was not linked to marriage, because marriage was only the glorification and sanctification of a physical and ordinary love. In his famous thesis dictated on the myth of love, Denis de Rougemont showed the chivalrous love towards a noble lady is mainly symbolic. This lady in thoughts represents the spiritual angelic part of the human being, the true self. In this way, the stories and characters in early novels such as Tristan and Isolt merely reflect man's adventure and the conquest of his own soul. Lastly, the article goes on to say, This spiritual heresy was hidden under the appearance of gallantry and romantic love. The deep meaning of these early novels progressively faded, and the myth of love generated generalized so as to become a requirement that should be fulfilled at all times. The statistics of divorce nowadays are the consequence of this omnipresent myth that has become a veritable tyranny of feelings. Love is owed to everyone, and it is expected at all times. Everyone claims the right to a love like that seen in the movies and novels, yet this is only a pale reflection of the initial myth whose meaning has now been lost. Everyone lives with the nostalgia of the perfect love and the wonderful happy ever after love that continually eludes us because we have given, forgotten, sorry, we have forgotten that true love is primarily found within ourselves. I'm about to get a little transparent and share how my idea of love was developed early on and then transformed by a couple of milestone moments. As I begin, I think it's safe to say that children often mimic what we see adults doing without fully knowing what those actions mean. As such, entering kindergarten, I must have had a little swagger, which resulted in having two girlfriends, Angel and Stephanie, and other girls in the class arguing for my attention. My class had different place centers designed to encourage imagination, and I distinctly remember one time Angel and I were in the same playgroup, and it was a kitchen vignette. Apparently, we had decided to play mommy and daddy and began kissing, which led us to slowly moving towards the ground. It did not take long before adults were yelling and making a beeline towards us, where I soon found myself being aggressively pulled away from her. I tell this story because the lesson that stuck was that kids are not supposed to behave this way, and Angel and I never played in the same group again. During the second grade, any swagger I had was crushed and buried when I went to the optometrist and was prescribed super thick glasses, which seemingly every kid referred to as Coke bottles from then on. It was at this point, any self-confidence I had was bottled up with those glasses and I went into an emotional shell that lasted through my freshman year of college when I finally got contacts. Looking back, I missed out on a lot of social events because my looking glass self was so skewed. What does looking glass self mean? The looking glass self describes the process wherein individuals base their sense of self on how they believe others view them. Using social interactions as a type of mirror People use the judgments they receive from others to measure their own worth, values, and behavior. The term looking glass self was created by American sociologist 
Charles Horton Cooley in 1902 and introduced into his work, Human Nature and the Social Order. The next milestone came not too long after the experience with my new glasses when I saw the movie Somewhere in Time, which is based on the book Bid Time Return by Richard Matheson. If you are a sci-fi buff like me, you may recognize other Richard Matheson book-inspired movies, such as The Incredible Shrinking Man, I Am Legend starring Will Smith, Stir of Echoes starring Kevin Bacon, What Dreams May Come starring Robin Williams and Cuba Gooding Jr., Jaws 3D, starring Dennis Quaid and Leah Thompson, and there are many more. Like Stan Lee in the MCU films, Matheson often made a cameo. Quick disclaimer, if you have never seen the movie Somewhere in Time, this may be your cue to stop the podcast as there will be spoilers. And then of course, rejoin after you've watched it. The film tells the story of Richard Collier, a present-day playwright played by Christopher Reeve, with the movie starting at an after-party for one of Collier's plays. While cutting the cake, Collier is approached by an elderly woman who hands him a pocket watch and whispers, to his astonishment, Come back to me. When asked who she is, he proclaims he has never seen her before in his life. The movie picks up years later with Collier facing a deadline and deciding he needs to get away. Not really having a plan of where he is going, he takes Lakeshore Drive out of Chicago. I note about this scene. It shows the famous Drake Hotel in the background, and a few years back on a weekend getaway, I had the privilege of staying at the Drake Hotel. I was also fortunate enough to have a room overlooking Lakeshore Drive and a magnificent view of Lake Erie. The movie had not even crossed my mind until I entered the room and was overtaken by the view out of the windows, which suddenly had me feeling like I was in somewhere in time. I may repost the picture of the view on social media. Okay, back to the movie. Along the way, he passes the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, and something causes him to put the car in reverse and turn into the hotel where he registers as a guest. Collier soon becomes obsessed with a photograph of a young woman in the hotel's Hall of History, which happens to be missing the nameplate. He learns the picture is of American actress Elise McKenna, played by Jane Seymour, and after some research discovers she is the same woman who gave him the pocket watch. Through self-hypnosis, he wishes himself back in time to 1912, where he plans to woo her. Her manager, William Fawcett Robinson, played by the great and now late Christopher Plummer, sees Collier as a threat to Elise in her career and resolves to stop him. Did I mention the magnificent movie soundtrack composed by John Barry is every bit of magical as this movie? If I ever find myself out of sorts and needing a moment of mindfulness, I listen to the soundtrack and it helps bring me back to a calm and restful place. I did not grow up in a religious family, despite my grandfather being a Baptist preacher, and it was not until after I turned 16 that we started going to church. Most of what I knew about sex at the age came from pornographic material we would sneak from our father's or an older sibling's stash. 
Even at an immature age, it stuck out to me that pornographic pictures or movies had nothing to do with true love, but the pure satisfaction derived from sex, no matter who or how many it was with. And around this time in my life, a movement started sweeping across evangelical churches called True Love Waits. The campaign was spearheaded by faith-based author and speaker Josh McDowell, and later supported by a book entitled Why Love, Why True Love Waits, the definitive book on how to keep your kids, uh, help your kids resist sexual pressure. Here's where I say somewhere in time helped awaken the romantic in me, because due to the fact I was already of the mindset that fate would lead me to my Elise McKenna somewhere, somehow. And I ended up uh, having no problem taking the true love weight pledge to not have sex before marriage. And thinking about it, the message of true love weights had a similar impact as the experience I had in kindergarten, where I was first told kids are not supposed to behave this way. I do not regret having taken the pledge as I saw the hurt and deep wounds my friends were experiencing from being sexually active in their early teens. Now that I have my own children, I have found myself coaching them to resist sexual pleasure until an appropriate age, not because I think sex is bad, but I want them to understand that they, as teenagers, are not ready to be responsible for the lingering consequences that may come from having sex in an early age. So what's love got to do with it? My journey keeps bringing me back to this one simple revelation. You must find what you're looking for in yourself first. And what is self-love then? According to an article published May 15, 2018 on the HealthyMePA.com website called Four Benefits of Self-Love and Why It's Important, it says self-love is defined as regard for one's own well-being and happiness. And there are three types of self-love. Physical, which refers to how you see yourself. Mental, which refers to how you think of yourself, like self-acceptance. Psychological, refers to how you treat yourself. In other words, self-respect. For self-love to manifest, you must make yourself a priority. Developing love takes time, so you must practice it daily. And here are four benefits of self-love. Number one, acquire life satisfaction. When you genuinely love yourself, you create a mindset of acceptance. You become willing to accept your life stages and situations and take responsibility for your actions. You also recognize where the love, happiness, passion, and authenticity comes from. When you acknowledge the power you hold over your life, you become satisfied with how you live it. Simply being satisfied with your life has a great mental impact, contributing to an overall lower self-stress life. Number two, develop a healthy lifestyle. During the journey of loving yourself, you'll want to get your give your body everything it needs, sleep, food, water, and exercise. Living a healthy lifestyle is difficult for most people, but it can be done to help you reach your goals. Loving yourself will give you motivation to incorporate your goals into your daily routine. The positive results of your lifestyle will soon shine through as you build the confidence to begin new challenges. Benefits of developing healthy habits include being thankful, spending time alone, practicing mindfulness, allowing forgiveness, and wearing your confidence proudly. Number three, learn to deal with adversity. 
When you love yourself, you will feel less stressed or uncomfortable when you go through difficult events or situations. You won't compete with or compare yourself to others. You'll embrace your hardships. You'll become an optimistic thinker and you will be willing to get creative and try new things. Number four, develop healthy self-esteem. With self-love, you'll develop healthy self-esteem, which is feeling good about yourself, your opinions, and your abilities. Having healthy self-esteem means you understand failure is a learning opportunity and not a painful indicator of defeat. Your pride and confidence aren't easily diminished when you value your opinions and abilities. In daily tasks and activities, you complete things without hesitation. Self-esteem plays a huge role in your mental health. By having a great level of self-esteem, you'll be less likely to suffer from loneliness, drug or alcohol abuse, or anxiety. In a blog found on the bbrfoundation.org, titled Love, Self-Love and What It Means, written by Jeffrey Borenstein, MD, who is the president and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. It says that before a person is able to practice it, we must first understand what it means. Self-love is a state of appreciation for oneself that grows from actions that support our physical, psychological, and spiritual growth. Self-love means having a high regard for your own well-being and happiness. Self-love means taking care of your own needs and not sacrificing your well-being to please others. Self-love means not settling for less than what you deserve. Self-love can mean something different for each person because we all have many different ways to take care of ourselves. And figuring out what self-love looks like for you as an individual is an important part of your mental health. So what does self mean, uh, self-love mean? mean to you? For starters, it can mean taking, talking to and about yourself with love, prioritizing yourself, giving yourself a break from self-judgment, trusting yourself, being true to yourself, being nice to yourself, setting healthy boundaries, and then forgiving yourself when you aren't being true or nice to yourself. Do you get the uh, theme here? For many people, self-love is another way to say self-care. To practice self-care, we often need to go back to the basics and listen to our bodies, take breaks from work and move, stretch, put the phone down and connect to yourself or others or do something creative, eating healthily, but sometimes indulge in your favorite foods. Self-love means accepting yourself as you are in this very moment for everything that you are. It means accepting your emotions for what they are and putting your physical, emotional, and mental well-being first. How and why to practice self-love? So, now we know that self-love motivates you to make healthy choices in life. When you hold yourself in high esteem, you're more likely to choose things that nurture your well-being and serve you well. These things may be in the form of eating healthy, exercising, or having healthy relationships. Ways to practice self-love include becoming mindful. People have who have 
are, yeah, people have who have more self-love tend to know what they think, feel, and want, taking actions based on need rather than want. By staying focused on what you need, you turn away from automatic behavior patterns that get you into trouble, keep you stuck in the past, and lessen self-love. Practicing good self-care. You will love yourself more when you take better care of your basic needs. People high in in self-love nourish themselves daily through healthy activities like sound nutrition, exercise, proper sleep, intimacy, and healthy social interactions. And then last, making room for healthy habits. Start truly caring about yourself by mirroring, mirroring that in what you eat, how you exercise, and what you spend time doing. Do stuff not to get it done or because you have to, but because you care about you. And finally, to practice self-love, start being kind, patient, gentle, and compassionate to yourself the way you would with someone else that you care about. And I think about these things for myself because I have been on a lifelong path of trying to correct my brokenness, the brokenness that I inherited from my parents, the brokenness that I have endured in the relationships I've allowed myself to get in, and just ultimately knowing that uh, life is a... uh, I don't know. It's a journey. It's a self journey. And if you listen to the last podcast about drifting, uh, if you find yourself drifting in life, then there's no self care happening um, in that moment. So, all right. Lastly, I'm going to give you a quote from the book, Stop Walking on Eggshells, Taking Your Life Back When Someone You Care About Has Borderline Personality Disorder. And it's by Paul T. Mason, MS, and Randy Kreger. And it says, no matter how confused, self-doubting, or ambivalent we are about what's happening in our interactions with other people, we can never entirely silence the inner voice that always tells us the truth. We may not like the sound of the truth, and we often let it murmur just outside our consciousness, not stopping long enough to listen. But when we pay attention to it, it leads us towards wisdom, health, and clarity. That voice is the guardian of our integrity. Quoted from Susan Forward, PhD. Well, that's it for this episode of Attitude is a Lifestyle podcast. I really appreciate you sticking around till the end. I'm busy planning the next episode and hope you'll plan to join me uh, next time. Until then... This is your host, Basic Brian, saying over and out, see you roundabout.